You have queued up The Roulette Tapes, a program of adventurous music and conversation recorded at the New York City Concert Hall, Roulette. You can hear thousands of concert recordings from Roulette's past and present and find news of upcoming events celebrating innovation and imagination at roulette.org. Aren't you curious? Welcome to another episode of The Roulette Tapes. I'm Susan James. I'll be your host for this edition. Clarinetist and composer Don Byron joined us from his home in upstate New York to discuss his performances at Roulette, ranging from an evening of duets with fellow clarinetist J.D. Perrin to a concert featuring Olivier Messiaen's Quartet for the End of Time. We'll hear excerpts of these concerts, and an added bonus, we'll hear a piece from Don Byron's current work, The Saul Bass Project performed by the MIT Symphony Orchestra. First, some thoughts on the Messian piece. I don't know what you want me to say about the quartet for the end of time, except that it's one of the historic pieces of 20th century music. Everybody knows that it was premiered, not completely written, but partially written and completely world premiered in a German concentration camp during World War II. So it has a kind of a crazy, kind of spooky, weird, crazy kind of vibe to it. and. You know, a lot of how it achieves that vibe is the materials that Messian was really using. A lot of Eastern concepts of rhythm and his love of birds and animals, bird calls, which he's always kind of referencing, you know, stuff from like Indian music and birds. Thank you. 
haven't listened to it since it happened. I have a hard time listening back to me playing classical music because when you play classical music, this is the, the downside of playing classical music is if you make one little mistake, you've basically fucked it up. I mean, it's not that every performance of high level classical music, the notes are perfect, but you, you're really shooting for that. And, you know, when I was a kid and, you know, at Manhattan, like if I made any little mistake, motherfuckers were snickering because they knew, of course, that I couldn't do the shit. So I still have that orientation that like, even if I miss one little thing, I feel a little defeated by it, you know? Because the feeling at, at Manhattan was like, it wasn't like I was a bad player. It was like, I had no business thinking that I was a classical player at all. And I should just go back to jazz. That's a heavier weight even than thinking, you know, hey, well, if I make one clam, everybody will notice. It's more like if I make one clam, everybody knows that I don't belong here. So I still have a little bit of that. Of course, you know, when I came back from New England, I had gone through all this modern repertoire to where I really knew that I could play it, you know, stuff that I would have never been asked to play in New York. I just played all the modern shit and I knew that I could play it. And then like when I started playing with black musicians, there was none of that. That was a tip off was when I started playing with Blewett. I could, you know, I could play anything that those musicians put in front of me and everybody knew it. it you know, it kind of proved that it really was some racial shit, but that doesn't mean that I'm over it. Even when I'm playing with white motherfuckers who respect me, there's always a little bit of that, you know, you ain't really classical shit in the back of my head. So subsequently, I have a hard time listening to me playing shit like that. Going Gosh is the title of the first or second of the Warner Brothers Roadrunner cartoons. And I was really interested in rescoring that because as a student of Carl Stalling, I think his approach to the uh, Roadrunner cartoons was very conservative. And almost to the point like where when I hear uh, like a score to one of those, I really don't like it because it, you know, Stalling is a guy, he didn't really do that much out and out composing. He just had a large library of things that he could kind of arrange very quickly, you know, things by Raymond Scott that he knew very well, that he could stick in various spots and were very evocative. But there's very little material that's like a melody that he composed. He's always kind of quoting, sampling, however you want to look at it. I just didn't agree with the shit that he, he sampled. I thought it was very simplistic thinking that like you have a bird like running down the road fast 
and you put in some uh, like a Paganini Caprice or something like that, something very fast, but very tonal. I just thought it was a missed opportunity for a guy like that. And, and so I was very interested in doing that music in a more modern way than he'd approached it. So that's kind of the story of going, going, gosh. Dan was the hippest guy that I ever knew. I mean, he introduced me to everything from Joe Henderson to Nam June Paik. He was he was a real New Yorker. Uh, he was a guy who was part of the famous 369th Armory, which was a kind of military unit out of Harlem that a lot of people fought in in World War One and World War Two, and in that unit he was the best marksman and he won all these medals. He was a guy that like, if you were in the FBI or CIA and you needed to be qualified in firearms, my uncle did that. But he was also not a player of jazz, but quite the connoisseur of jazz music and film music. When I was a kid, I loved Lalo Schifrin. I could talk to him about Lalo Schifrin. You know, he had Lalo Schifrin arranging for Jimmy Smith or Lalo Schifrin's own albums. He knew Jerry Goldsmith, Lalo Schifrin, Bernard Herrmann. You could have a conversation with him about those things. And, well, this is what I really give it up to him for. The first record that I heard Joe Anderson on was a record that I got from him called Delightful Lee. So, you know, my parents weren't particularly artistic people. This guy was a painter, a sculptor. I remember when I was growing up, we had a painting that he did of the three of us that he called the three sounds. And it was these bl three blobs, abstract blobs in, in the canvas of me and my mother and my father. Handsome guy, loved his booze. He was just the coolest guy I have ever known to this day. And I just think you know, a lot of what I've been able to do. I mean, you know, he took me to MoMA and, you know, they happened to have some of that Nam June Paik shit up with the TV cello shit. I mean, like this man took me to see that 
when I was, I don't even know how old I was. And, you know, he had the artistic impulse in him, which I think is one of my things. The artistic impulse. Who has it, who understands it, what it really is. My uncle knew what the art artistic impulse is. And he could see that in various things. So, um, you know, some, some of my great film music experiences, going to see Bullet or Kelly's Heroes with my mom and tripping on the Lala Schiffer music, that's all from my uncle. You know, I just really love him. And so I wrote that thing. Also the influence of the piece, it's really very much influenced by this guy I just did an interview with Louis Petticortis, who's really influenced a lot of my writing. And he is also a very arty fellow. So that's what the piece looks like compositionally. And that's who it's about. Some of Don Byron's best-known compositions were originally intended as film scores. Basquiat is one such work, and it appears in various forms on a few of his albums. Don discussed the nature of film composing and some of the challenges. 
I have to say that like the clarinet itself, film music is some super white centric shit. I mean, it just is. If you look at who's doing it and who doesn't get to do it, it is now and it's always kind of been that way. And I don't mean, you know, the occasional black person that they want to do some songs or the kind of things that you see in like a, well, somebody like um, Tyler Perry, whose work I don't really love, but he uses a lot of kind of smooth jazzy kind of music in his his work. And, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But when I'm talking about working on a film, I'm talking about writing inspired, underscoring music that isn't necessarily in one genre. All of the film composers that I love, they know some jazz, they know some contemporary classical music, they know the pre-contemporary romantic classical and Baroque, and maybe some early music. They know how to work with, with a pop band, with a with a funk band, with a old-timey doo-woppy rock and roll band. I mean, you know, when I think of Mancini, Jerry Goldsmith, all of these things that make me a weird black person to a jazz critic that thinks that I shouldn't know this and that. That's exactly what you want to be as a film composer is that you know how a few different things, you know how they work and you know how to get the best out of people that play that idiom. And you might have your own wrinkle on some Latin music. Like for me, Henry Mancini had his own wrinkle on it. It was definitely coming out of Machito and Tito Puente and Tito Rodriguez. It was definitely coming out of that. But he had his own wrinkles on how to how to write for those groups. So Basquiat was written for a film that it got rejected from, a Paul Auster film called Lulu on the Bridge. If you see it, there's the waltz in there that really has nothing on the piece that I wrote. And I've had this kind of repeatedly in my working time as a film composer is like, whatever I think is the baddest shit I ever wrote, that's gonna get rejected. Whatever it is, like the most recent is a thing that I've been calling Delphian nuptials. That got rejected from a documentary on Lorraine Hansberry. And by the way, this is not unique to my experience of working with film directors. Alex North wrote a complete score to um, 2001 A Space Odyssey was completely rejected, completely rejected, not like you know, some of the shit I go through is kind of like, 
oh, well, you can't have this song, but I kind of like that song. You know, Lala was fired, has a couple famous firings. So, you know, film composition can be like that, but it's gotten more like that with digital editing because nowadays most films are cut to something. And the fact that they're cut to something means that if you're the film composer, you come in and somebody's already cut the film to somebody else's music. So, you know, in a way, if you actually sit and compose, which is what you want to do, you, you may take yourself far away enough from the thing that the person used to cut the film that they'll never get used to it. They're almost like invested in the thing that they chose. And um, that has made it, you know, a very frustrating mistress doing film because it's the thing that I love the most and feel the most inspired by doing. So a lot of the things that I've done are film inspired. Like when I got commissioned to write for the Bang on a Can All-Stars, I took a, a Ernie Kovacs thing that I grew up seeing and I scored that. The Saul Bass project really has evolved from doing those kinds of things. And Saul Bass is a visual artist who specialized in doing the openings of famous films by people like Hitchcock and Otto Preminger. It's a great challenge for me to rescore his openings. In general, film openings are very much akin to the overture in an opera. So the overture in an opera is some kind of instrumental rock out for the composer. You may introduce themes that you're going to use later, but whatever you're doing, you can rock out on it. You don't have to worry about covering dialogue or a singer. You can just kind of rock out. So the project that I just did three of these Saul Bass openings on, it's really three different films that were originally scored, you know, most of them by people that I completely admire. One's Aaron Copeland and others, Elmer Bernstein, you know, these are the cats, you know, if you're interested in that music, that's who you're studying. And, you know, I just kind of challenged myself to try and do something they'd already done differently, you know, not so much thinking or referring to what they've done, but just trying to give myself a fresh ear to it.
a segment of three pieces from the Saul Bath Project commissioned by the Massachusetts Institute of Technology performed by the MIT Symphony Orchestra, Evan Zaporin conducting. Music composed and arranged by Don Byron, the recording provided to us by the composer. The Roulette Tapes is a production of Roulette Intermedium. This program is made possible in part with support from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Grammy Museum and has been named a 2021 Webby Award honoree. Our executive producer is David Weinstein. I'm Susan James. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to The Roulette Tapes, a program of adventurous music and conversation. This series is produced by Roulette Intermedium. You can find thousands of concert recordings from Roulette's archives and news of upcoming events at roulette.org.